Join us for the ETF.com Awards on May 2nd in New York City to honor and celebrate innovation, excellence, and growth in the ETF industry. With an impressive panel of expert judges, a record number of nominees, and more than 200 of the most influential players in the ETF space, this is one event you won't want to miss. Reserve your seat today at awards.etf.com. I think to a degree, we're still looking at a little bit of a, you know, of an increased rate environment. We have to see where the inflation numbers come in, because I think, you know, the Fed has said that's pretty much what they're what they're focused on, um, as, as that's their, their primary tool to control that. Um, and, you know, even if things steady up, there's going to be a transitionary period, um, unless something, you know, there's another shock to the system that would cause it to go down. Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. I'm Managing Editor Heather Bell, and I'm joined by my colleague, Senior ETF Analyst, Samit Roy. Hey, Samit. Hey, Heather. Our guest today is Noel Archer, the Global Head of ETFs at Alliance Bernstein, um, the AB Tax Aware Short Duration Municipal ETF, TAFI, is one of the funds nominated for the ETF.com awards in the best new U.S. fixed income ETF category. Noel Archard has held ETF-related roles in his career with Vanguard, State Street, Global Advisors, and with BlackRock. We will talk to him a little bit later. Samit, just to kick things off, uh, what is going on with Coinbase and Block? It seems like they're in a little bit of trouble. Yeah, yeah, we got kind of a double whammy of bad news for two former fintech darlings, Coinbase and Block. So in the case of Block, it was a target of Hindenburg Research, which is a small research firm focused on short selling. And what Hindenburg essentially accused Block of is facilitating fraud with its cash app. It said that the company essentially looks the other way as many of its customers use the app for black market type of activities and that a lot of the accounts on the app are fake or tied to shady characters and things like that. Uh, And then meanwhile, Coinbase got hit with a Wells notice from the SEC, which means that the regulator is probably going to sue the company for violating securities law. So this is pretty interesting because Coinbase has prided itself on being one of the most regulated crypto companies out there and how it follows the letter of the law to a T. But even with everything the firm has done, the SEC seemingly hasn't been satisfied. And so it's calling into question whether outside of buying and selling Bitcoin in the most basic way, the crypto industry can even exist here in the US under the current regulatory regime. Anyway, uh, both of these stocks, if you look on Thursday, Coinbase uh, and Block, they're down big, something like 15, 20 percent. And they just so happen to be big, big holdings in many fintech type of ETFs, as well as the ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK. You got something like 14 percent of that ETF invested in these two stocks. So any you know fintech type of ETF just isn't having a, a good day as of Thursday. That's interesting because there, um, those crypto-related equities have really 
had really taken off at the beginning of the year, I guess, because they were so beaten down. But it looks like they're in for another uh, rough time, possibly. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. The crypto companies are kind of getting hit, but Bitcoin has actually been a very standout performer and it's actually holding up decently. I think the low was 15K late last year. It's around 28K. Um, so, yeah, there is some differentiation going on between the cryptocurrency itself and the companies involved in the industry. Yeah, I think that's a interesting aspect of all of this. But the other big news this week was that the Fed hiked rates again by 25 basis points. I felt like that was kind of what was expected. But uh, Smeet, what does that imply going forward? And how are the markets reacting to it? Yeah, yeah. So it, it was one of the most highly anticipated Fed meetings that I can remember. And, and for a few days leading up to the meeting, we weren't even sure whether the Fed would hike at all. But like you said, in the end, they came through with a, a quarter point hike. What's more interesting to me, though, is the fact that Powell wasn't quite as dovish as some people thought he would be. And the reason for that is, of course, the fact that inflation continues to run hot. The Fed can't completely pivot it, uh, from its hawkish stance because it hasn't definitively won its battle against inflation yet. So maybe the banking crisis leads to less lending, leading to less economic growth and then lower inflation uh, or something even worse, right? Like the banking crisis leads to a recession. On the other hand, we could see maybe the banking crisis just ends up being a small fire that goes out quickly. No one really knows. The Fed doesn't know. We don't know. So I think that's why Powell's stance was a bit more wait and see what happens uh, type of stance. And if you look at the Fed's projections, they essentially are indicating that they're going to hike one more time and then stop. But of course, those are just projections. And like Powell said in his press conference, you know, the door is still open to more rate hikes if the banking crisis ends soon. And inflation is still a problem. Um, but, but of course, he didn't talk as much about this, but I think the opposite is the case as well, right? If the banking crisis gets worse, then the Fed might truly pivot and cut rates later this year. And, and that's essentially what the market's pricing in right now. If you look at the two-year treasury yield, it's around 4% versus the Fed funds rate of around 5%. That means that the market's expecting the Fed to cut rates later this year instead of holding them in place like the, the Fed is kind of projecting in its summary of economic projections. So only time's going to will tell whether, uh, you know, the market's right, the Fed's right, you know, where the Fed funds rate is going to end the year. Is it going to be 5% or is it going to be closer to 4% or lower? And, and I think it's going to come down to how the banking crisis develops, whether it ends quickly or not as well as how inflation develops, right? We got three great months of decelerating inflation late last year, uh, but early this year, it started to pick up again. Who knows what's going to happen this summer, this fall, this winter? Um, so we'll see. There's still a lot of open questions. I think this is a great time to bring Noel onto the show. Awesome. Noel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start by asking you about fixed income. We just got the Fed's latest decision this week. And if you just take what happened at face value, it looks like the Fed is close to the end of its rate hacking cycle. Does this mean uh, short duration ETFs like your AB Ultra Short Income ETF 
aren't as attractive are still attractive? What's your take? Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of unknowns still out there. Um, obviously, it, it's been a tumultuous couple of weeks. Uh, you know, the Fed, um, you know, there was, I'm sure there were some people out there that were hoping the Fed might just, you know, stand pat and let things go. But the focus is still on inflation. The inflation numbers, um, you know, in, in certain pockets are still looking, uh, you know, a, a, above that target. Um, and there's still that view that, you know, beyond this rate, the, the the dot plot says that there might still be another one beyond that. So I, I think to a degree, we're still looking at a little bit of a, you know, of an increased rate environment. We have to see where the inflation numbers come in, because I think, you know, the Fed has said that's pretty much what they're what they're focused on um, as as that's their their primary tool to control that. Um, and, you know, even if things steady out, there's going to be a transitionary period um, unless something, you know, there's another shock to the system that would cause it to go down. So I, I think, you know, the short answer is the ultra short is still, uh, that ultra short space is still beneficial in a few ways, you know, one for the rate environment, two, just for some of that uh, cash that might be on the sidelines that people are thinking about, you know, where do they deploy it? You know, you could deploy it into that ultra short uh, income product and still have a healthy yield with, you know, with sort of minimum volatility. Um and frankly, that that's an enduring condition, right? As you think about building up positions or getting ready to invest, um, ultra short almost always has some place in in a lot of portfolios. And so I think that uh, that it's going to be attractive in the in the near to midterm, um, and then that it's just a persistent long term use case. No, um, I want to jump back a little bit. Um, I was wondering what led Alliance Bernstein into the ETF space. Yeah, um, a few a few things. I mean, they they looked at it uh, for a while. This was a, a very thoughtful decision on the part of the firm. Um, you know, a couple of triggers. You know, one, it it was good timing from a uh, just from a, a utility perspective. In that, a few years back, the SEC um, codified you know the ETF rule uh, un, under the Forty Act, made it much more uh, accessible for firms to come into the marketplace by creating a level playing field, one set of rules, because prior to the ETF rule, uh, whatever that was now, two, three years ago, um, everyone was launching by, you know, by exemptive relief approach, which meant, you know, inconsistent applications um, around how you could manage the vehicle amongst different providers. So it was attractive from the perspective that, that the barrier to entry lowered and you had a consistent playing field to run the vehicle. That was sort of, you know, the the operational consideration. And then the, you know, just the investor um, utility consideration, uh, the the ETF has continued, has continued over the years, um, you know, 30 years now in the U.S. to be a vehicle uh, of choice for more and more clients for, for a whole number of, of factors, you know, the features of the product set, the convenience, the ongoing um, lowering of the frictional cost in owning the vehicles, not just the TER, but, you know, commissions ability to own fractional shares, et cetera, uh, the tax efficiency of the vehicle. So um, it just made sense that, you know, for for a firm uh, that has, you know, that multi-asset type firm in, in many, uh, you know, global firm like AB, um, make sure that we're making our strategies available in, in the vehicles that the clients have a preference for. So it's not all about ETFs, but you want to be sure that you have that in the, you know, in the toolkit along with your separately managed accounts, mutual funds within the retirement space, CITs, whatever it might be. Gotcha. Um, one of the other things I noticed about um, your fund lineup is you, Alliance Bernstein is basically a purely active manager. 
but um, it doesn't look like you've gone with the active non-transparent structure for either the fixed income or for the equity funds that you launched this week. Um, can you talk about that a little? Yeah, we, we've stuck with the transparent active structure. Um, you know, the simple answer is because we could. Uh, the, as we looked at the strategies that we were coming out with, we didn't feel that there was, you know, um, any reason that we needed to, to shield the holdings on those particular products. Um, I think, you know, from the perspective of, of, you know, wherever you can reduce or keep, you know, keep things as simple as possible. I think it's important if we ever came up with a strategy that we felt was really going to be good for end investors and required some shielding of the, of the holdings, um, it's great that we have options out there in the marketplace that we can utilize. But for these particular strategies, you know, in conversations with with our PMs, with with you know various people across the firm, um, we felt very comfortable putting this out in a transparent, active format. And I think that's good for clients in the long run as well, because they, you know, like everything, they get to see what they own every day. Um, they can see what the portfolio holdings are and and how that changes over time. And and is it being uh, representative of the objective of the fund? Absolutely. That's great. We love the transparency. Now, I, I want to ask you about a specific ETF you have, the AB Disruptors ETF, ticker symbol FWD. This would have been obviously a great ETF for the 2020-2021 market environment, but obviously high growth stocks have fallen out of favor since 2022. What's the thesis for this ETF going forward? And how does it compare to other ETFs that invest in similar disruptive type of technology companies? Yeah, I think um, I'm not sure that growth will ever go fully out of style um, as far as what investors are looking for. I think when when we think about the products that we want to bring to market, um, we we are thinking about this through a couple of different lenses. One of the big ones is, you know, if you think about uh, investors in the U.S. and and frankly, this is a global, uh, this isn't really unique just to the U.S., but there are investment um, themes, broad investment themes that that are you know regularly present, and that's you know how do you control for risk, how do you manage income, um, how do you manage growth in a portfolio that might be you know longer term or have a, a longer time horizon. So our view of this was um, we're we're taking strategies that we have uh, you know that are either complementing existing strategies at the firm or plugging gaps um, within our lineup within you know core competencies that we have. So when we think about you know, that large cap growth space, um, you know, in a global footprint, this this to us made sense, right? I mean, there there's always going to be pockets of opportunity in the marketplace. Um, if anything, it's it's nice to come into the market when valuations are down a little bit for the for the long-term potential, because again, I, we think of this product as more long-term in nature. Um, so with with forward, the disruptors fund, really that idea is to, you know, outperform global growth equity markets. Um, by really looking at firms that that continue to challenge the way business is done within their respective industries. So it's not, you know, a tech sector fund. It looks at multiple sectors and multiple geographies. But as you can imagine, you know, like everything in our life, um, changes in technology are, are an important uh, component um, to where some of these industry leaders are continuing to, um, you know, to make progress changing the way that business is done within their industries. Um, there were two other funds uh, that launched this week from Alliance Bernstein, the AB US Low Volatility Equity ETF with the ticker LOW and the AB US High Dividend ETF 
with the ticker HIDV. Um, we just, you just talked about uh, the disruptors ETF. Um, I was wondering, are these other two funds, low and HIDV, are they kind of something that is maybe more timely for the current uh, investment environment? Yeah, so so uh, uh, ticker is low V, L O W V for our for our low vol product. Yep, and then and then HIDV is the high div. So I, again, the way I thought about it, Heather, is as we sat back and looked at this, is that you know these products, um, you know, they're they're always going to have you know moments where, uh, you know, the market market is focused on them, you know, more, you know, either persistently or within any time period. But with low V. Um, you know, this is a large cap equity, you know, equity product as well, focusing on the U.S. And what we want to do there is is have a product that that has, you know, the potential to, you know, add add growth to the portfolio over time, but just try and reduce a little bit of that roller coaster ride. So, you know, certainly in this type of environment, that's attractive to clients. But I think that approach um, is something that, you know, in, in my experience, a lot of clients are looking at that all the time and thinking about, you know what, I might have something that's a little bit growthy in the portfolio, but I'm going to counterbalance that with something that might have a little bit um, of, of some, you know, downside cushion to it based on the securities that it holds um, and the way that 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 the the portfolio construction goes there. So for, you know, low V that's looking at the, the mid and large cap world, they're looking at, at these multiple factors of quality, stability and price. Um, to try and just get a softer ride as as you have a persistent application. And then with high div, HIDV, um, that's, again, it's the income story. But I think what's interesting on that one, the way we thought about it was, again, how do investors use um, other products in their portfolios? There, there's a lot of, uh, you know, frankly, low cost uh, beta exposures out there that are, you know, sort of that core blend portfolio. Um, and a lot of times, uh you know, uh, an income producing fund is parked next to that, but those income producing funds tend to have sector tilts. What we wanted to do is come out with something that was a little closer to a beta of one, closer to sector neutral to the broad benchmark, because you shouldn't have to necessarily, you know, give up your long-term growth prospects um, just to capture a little bit extra yield. So we wanted to increment up the yield. We wanted to keep, you know, beta neutral so that over time, um, you're not going to be disadvantaged when you have those those pops of growth in the market. I think you know we've all read the same studies. Like you miss a few key days each year, um, and that can really erode the long term gains. And so you know we're we're being very thoughtful about how these products work, not just in the investment period today, but how they're going to work in portfolios over the long run. That's great, Noel. And obviously, you have a very eclectic mix of ETFs already on the market. How are you thinking about future launches? Are you going to build up this whole suite of many, many different types of ETFs that people can use in any market environment, different strategies, et cetera? Yes, I, I you know, it's it's really interesting as someone that, you know, spent years, um, you know, working on, on various product ranges. Everyone takes, you know, a slightly different approach when you think about some of the, um, you know, you can go out there and say, you know, I'm going to have. 10 products and that's all we're going to focus on. You can say, I'm going to have 500 products and you've got, you know, a flavor for, for, you know, every moment of the marketplace. I'm um, given, you know, our, our, our active footprint, our, our research uh, capabilities. We do have a lot of arenas we can go in. We're, we're strong in, in equities. We're strong in fixed income. We have a, a really growing dynamic alts business. 
the way that I look about this uh, is, or think about this with the teams is more we're thinking, what are the scenarios that are coming up? As, as we launched our, our first two fixed income products, you know, you go back to last um, February and March where we were we were deciding what we wanted to launch initially. Um, this was again late February. We thought, well, you know, rates are probably going to go up and the market's probably going to be a bit volatile this year. We should go to the short end of the curve with these two fixed income products that complement some strategies that we had and, and plug the gap in another arena. Clearly, we didn't, um, you know, we we had we under underclubbed a little bit, you know, how how volatile the markets were going to be in 22 and, and how much rates were going to increase. Um, but it was that thought process of, you know, what kind of market dynamics are we going to be investing in? So as we think about future launches, um, you know, when when inflation does cool, when we go into you know, a growth environment, what types of, of products are going to make sense in our client portfolios? Um, you know, if you had a falling rate environment, if you had a recessionary environment, how do we put out portfolios that really address, again, those big themes of risk control, income, you know, in some case, you know, tax awareness, whatever it might be, um, and plug those against the different economic scenarios so that we have, you know, I think a representative lineup that will allow investors to to you know have portfolio options for for multiple market environments. Um. Wow. Uh, I mean, you're clearly being very thoughtful about how you're releasing products. Um. I was wondering if uh, <clears throat> when when you're launching a fund is are they typically uh kind of almost like clones or similar to any existing Alliance Bernstein strategies, or are you going with new strategies? And I'm sorry, this is a multi-parter. Um, is Alliance Bernstein looking to do anything like a mutual fund to ETF conversion in the future? Okay, so um, great questions. What we've done to date are more, I'll call them variations of strategies. So we haven't launched any any like straight clones um, but we've looked at strategies where we might have them in, you know, a separately managed account where they might have a global footprint. And we've decided to launch a U.S. specific version. And that just goes, uh, you know, investor preferences. You know, I think, you know, each country that you operate in, there's usually a little bit of a, of a uh, you know, a, a home bias where the thought is I'm going to, you know, allocate a certain portion of my portfolio to the domestic exposure. And then I want, you know, some options on the international the, the one, you know, exception to that is when you have thematic type offerings. And that's where I think investors are like, yeah, go anywhere. Um, themes usually cross, you know, across the globe uh, in a lot of cases. And so, you you know, you've got a little more utility there to, to have a go anywhere type strategy. So we've done variations to date. That doesn't mean we won't do something new because, we, again, we've got a lot of, of researchers and portfolio managers who are constantly thinking about where the puck is going to use that old jewel. Um, and and when they're thinking about where where that's going, um, that by by default means you're going to have some new strategies coming into play. But it's usually in areas where you know we've got deep research or core competency. So when I think about you know our our book of ETFs, our future ETFs, um, we're going to tend to have more of them that that fall into that like yeah, this is a variation of a strategy or an extension or an evolution of a strategy. But sometimes, you know, when I make up a number, 20, 25% of the offering is going to be something that feels a little bit more new, um, but it's going to be in an area that, where we have a lot of confidence that we know how to run that particular money. You know, for instance, we we might run, um, you know, an asset class for an institution 
uh, that retail doesn't necessarily think about us as as doing much of, but we've got you know the tech stack to trade it. We've got the PM experience, um, and we can bring that then into the retail market. So that that's where I think it gets kind of fun um, to think about those those brand extensions into different parts of the market where we've got expertise. Um, and then I think your third question was on conversions. We we actually have a conversion that we are working on now that we filed for. We're going to move. Um, we are we have we are looking for permission. Uh, to change one of our, our high yield mutual funds uh, into an ETF. And we're hopeful that that'll happen sometime, um, you know, this summer or this fall. Uh, that I think, you know, the whole mutual fund conversion um, uh, opportunity, it's, it's, it's certainly something to be examined. I don't think it's as straightforward a picture. I hear a lot of people say like, oh, there's going to you know trillions of dollars that are going to convert from mutual funds to ETFs. I think it's, you know, for us, the bar is pretty high on that. Like we want to find funds where it really makes sense, where there might not be, um, you know, as much growth as we think, because it's in a crowded part of the market and we might be able to, to again, use it in different ways. If we, if we bring it into the ETF format, we don't, you know, we're not going to convert something that has a really big footprint in the retirement space because that just doesn't work for the clients in that space, right? This, at the end of the day, the conversions have to work for the existing shareholders, um, and and your expectation has to be that you can grow that ETF in a way that will bring you know economies of scale for all investors in the fund. So um, there's a lot of moving parts to the conversions. Um, our our bar is going to be pretty high on that. And frankly, just out of um, you know out of out of respect, sympathy, or and partnership <laughs> with all the distribution platforms where our funds sit, um, that's a big operational lift for them. This is not you know a, a sort of costless exercise. When you do a conversion, you know the sponsor has a bunch of work, but the distribution platforms have uh, work to do as well. And then there's an educational component for you know for an advisor who might have bought a mutual fund and now suddenly owns an ETF and and might not be familiar with how to use ETFs within their book of business. Um, you know ETFs have become so pre uh, prevalent, but there's still clients that are getting up to speed on it. So I think it's it's going to be a a measured process for us. It's something we will certainly um, you know we will consider it where it makes sense, but it's, it's going to be a very much a case by case basis versus, Hey, let's, you know, just go take these 20 funds and roll them. Absolutely. I I've often looked at the whole conversion process and the arguments for and against, and I feel like it's a tightrope that the issuer has to walk balancing all the inter interests of the parties involved. We will have to end it there though. Thanks for joining us, Noel. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.